there. Uh, for those who haven't had a chance to meet Marianne yet, Marianne is one of our core team members. The core team is a, a group of ladies that run our children's ministry, and they've been doing a fantastic job. And so one of the things I hear a lot of times, uh, either from the parent side or from the core team leader side, is uh, just that challenge of trying to get to know each other, introduce each other, because you're always you know, passing off kids or in the mix there. And so we just want to give a chance to share her story. Uh, but also, as you can see in her story, this is this beautiful story of life change, right? This, the, the, the cross is not where Jesus' love ends. He doesn't just die. If, that, if that's all he ever did for us, that would be enough, and that would be a beautiful thing. But he continues to walk with us. He continues uh, to, to work in us and through us, where life change happens in our own lives. With God, that, uh, we, we, we see his love through his forgiveness, through the fact that we have sonship or daughtership, that we become part of the family of God, uh, that we inherit eternal life, and that there's continued growth. I like to say with God in our lives, there truly is a true and better story to be told. And it may not be an easier story, but it's a true and a better story. As we look at what, is our, what do our lives look like as we walk with God. We see stories of life change and stories of growth. And, and honestly, this is what Meadowland is about. This is why we exist as a church is to see lives changed by Jesus and disciples of Jesus made. We say this often, because this is our passion, this is our heartbeat, is to see the mission of God go forth and to see God work in and through us to see it accomplished. And, you know, there's, there's two significant ways I want to talk about this morning before we get into our message, that we seek to accomplish this. Two significant ways that we seek to see lives changed and disciples made. The first one, these are things that, that we do as the church. The first one is this, is that we go and tell that we go and tell people about Jesus. This is why we put an emphasis on community outreach, not simply because we want to do a good work in our community, not simply because we want to be here for our community, we don't want to take from them but give to them, but we serve so that we can have an opportunity to share the truth of Jesus in the lives of others. We want to engage in our community for that purpose. I would encourage you to, to figure out what are, the low, what, what are the needs of my local community? Are there areas where I can engage in either on my own as a small group or maybe bring something to the church where the whole church can meet a need in our local community just to communicate you are loved, loved by us, and you're loved by Jesus. That's why we do things like Salt Shakers that's starting up this coming Saturday at the McHenry Jewel. It's to reach out to our community to go and tell there's other ways we can do this we can go and tell by sharing our experiences of what god's doing in our life we can look at our story how is my story true and better as i pursue jesus and we can share those stories of how god was faithful in the midst of struggle in the midst of heartache how he was faithful with blessings in our lives and how he just served and worked in our lives in such amazing ways we can share those stories with loved ones with co-workers with neighbors with anyone who, who will listen. So here at Madeline, we talk about going and telling our story of what God is doing in our lives. And, and sometimes I think that gets a little scary, right? I, I, I don't know how to answer people's questions. You know, if I start to tell my story about what God's doing in my life, they're going to ask questions I don't know the answers to. That's okay. Especially in today's culture, in the climate of today's world, sometimes embracing the question. Being able to say, hey, I hear your question, I hear your concerns. I understand where you're at, can make such a significant impact that you can then uh, begin a journey to seeking the answer together. It's okay to say, I don't know the answer to your question, but can we, can we take a journey together and find out? 
who can go talk to someone who might, who can do some research and, and, and have a, a spirited conversation around what we see to be true. So we're going to go and tell people about Jesus. The other significant way that we seek to accomplish seeing lives changed and disciples made is have this heart of come and see. Come and see, an invitation, inviting people to come and, and have an experience with Jesus. I think sometimes when we hear this, we may think, okay, so we mean invite people to church, right? I do, but it's much broader than that. To invite people to church and, and church events, but to also invite people into our lives. Invite them to our homes, invite them to our tables. Invite them into our hardships, invite them into our celebrations. Say, hey, can I, can I share Jesus with you in this opportunity? Can I show you what God's doing in my life? Come and see how God works in my life. And the heart behind that is that people would then experience Jesus for themselves as well. We're going to continue to gather as the church and be the church, Meadowland. That, that is who we are and what we do. But we're going to do it in a way that acknowledges that we have guests here. We're going to do it in a way that acknowledges that there might be people in our midst, in our presence, who don't know what it means to follow Jesus. And they haven't taken that step in their own life yet. So we're going to do it in a way that explains what we're doing. We have baptisms coming up next week, right? And that, that's awesome. I'm so looking forward to that. We've said many times from up front that if you simply look at the act of baptism, next week we will have a horse trough up here, half full of water, because if you go all the way, it overflows, and it's kind of a fun story too, but we're not going to do that. Um, we have a horse trough filled with water up here, and we're going to have, right now we have about a half dozen. We may have more by the time we get to that point. Uh, between the two services, people coming up, we're going to share their story about how God's working in their life. We're going to get them in the tub, fully clothed. We're going to dunk them all the way underneath, hold them down a few seconds, make sure it takes, bring them up. Just kidding. If you think about baptism, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Depends on what your spouse pays me. Um, so I bring them back up, and then we cheer. And then you, we hug, and you all, we're all soaking wet, and you get dried off, and you, you change your clothes. And it, It's weird. But if we explain what it is about and what it represents... That's symbolic of the same way that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, that we go under the water and come up again, that we share in that death, burial, and resurrection, and we share in the overcoming of death that is found in Jesus. It's a proclamation of a life change. The fact that we've received Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we understand that, it's a beautiful act. And so everything we do here at Metal, we, we try to give you some handlebars to hold on to it. Okay, now I understand why we do that. Now that makes sense. I never saw it that way. Because we have this heart of come and see. We want to remove any offense that would keep people from hearing the offensive truth of the gospel. We are not going to back down from the good news of Jesus. And so anything that would keep someone from hearing the gospel, we want to get rid of that because environments matter. We talk about this a lot here as well. That's why we clean, clear, that's why we clean things up. We want to have a clear message about where to go and what's being said. We also want to be welcoming if you don't think environments matter, stop cleaning your house for a month and see what your guests think when you have guests in your home. Stop inviting them. Stop being welcoming when they come in your house. Give people the cold shoulder. You know, quickly see, yes, environments do matter. And so we want to address different things in our environments. Again, acknowledging that this is all to see lives change and disciples made. That that is the heart and the purpose behind this. And over the weeks, we've had all kinds of conversations about the conditions of our lot. At a meeting yesterday with our leaders, I was calling out our parking lot, and I was reminded that we don't have a parking lot. It's just our lot, a place we can put cars. I've also been reminded that not only is it a mess because of the current conditions with the thaw and the rain and some of those challenges we've had with some of the mud, 
but it's an accessibility option is, or issue as well. We, we, I've heard stories, unfortunately, people who said, yeah, I, I invited my friend to come, and I was on the phone with them, and I had, I had to talk them through every turn, and some of those stories don't end with people coming here. They just couldn't find the place because of signage or because of the, the way the, the, the drive is too steep and kind of tucked away a little bit. And so we're seeking to remedy some of those offenses. We've been talking about this. We've been saying, hey, we have a plan. And so this morning, I, I want to give you a glimpse of that plan. We've got a picture I'm going to show up on the screen here. Uh, this is our proposed parking lot. I, I know it's small, but if you can kind of see what you're looking at, is, is this building over here, this little kind of rectangle shape with a little circle on the back, back? That's the silo. That's us. That's a big you are here sign. That is the barn. And you can see this nice big new rectangle here with the four islands in it. That's our proposed parking lot that we're looking to put in with a driveway that's in line with the, the road across the street, uh, as well as widening that out. And this is about 82 parking spaces and uh, has four handicap and, and um, the kind of line that goes like that. Um, we're shooting to get this thing installed fully paved. Uh, asphalt prices are probably the cheapest that they're going to be in my lifetime uh, at this current time. And so if we can pull that off, that's our goal. Uh, but there are other options of putting in some gravel as well instead of full asphalt. And so this is our plan. And I'm sharing this because I want you, we're, we're aware of that, those struggles, we're aware that there's different offenses and we're doing everything we can in God's timing, in appropriate decisions as far as wisdom for finances and timing and all that kind of stuff uh, to kind of take those steps forward. And so we're going to be talking about this more. Um, next Sunday is Easter. The following Sunday, April 3rd, we're going to have a congregational meeting after, after service. And so anybody who would like to hear more about this, we're going to talk about the price and the fundraising, the plan for that. We're going to talk about the timeline. The next step in the timeline is this congregational meeting. Any questions you may have uh, can be fielded there as well. Um, if you can't make it and have questions, feel free to write those on the communication card. I'd be happy to follow up with you in the weeks ahead. Uh, this is exciting stuff. It, it, it may seem simple, like, hey, okay, it's a rectangle. Nice. Um, it may seem simple, but it's been a road to get to this point, and so we're thankful for how God is working uh, in and through this place. We're thankful for you guys uh, for enduring probably one of the messiest winters we've had, at least in, in my almost four years here, and, and from what I've heard from previous years from those who've been longer. And so I just want to share that with you that uh, we have that plan in place, and, and that's going forward. And so April 3rd will be the, the meeting on that if you have any questions or uh, want to just find out more. So we've been in the midst of our Jesus, A True and Better Story series. And, and I, I want to ask this question before we kind of really get into our character we're looking at this morning. Uh, have you ever been in a situation where you've been aware of somebody's need? They didn't have to say anything. They didn't have to say, hey, I, I need help. But just all of a sudden, oh, this guy over here needs help. Or this lady over here needs a hand. Maybe it's help picking something up or help, they're trying to hold a whole bunch of things or maybe they have a bunch of kids and they drop something. It could be real simple mundane things like that or um, someone's trying to pack something in their car and trying to get it to fit and you're like, man, ma'am, can I help? I played Tetris for like way too many years, so um, let, me, let me help you out there. Um, have you ever had those moments where you see the need? Maybe you see someone who just looks lonely. You can see it on their face. Hey, that, that, I think that person needs a hug. I should introduce myself first. Oh, that might be kind of weird. You see someone who looks lost. You kind of, they kind of do one of these, one like eye contact. They're kind of looking, I don't really know where to go. Or someone who looks hurt. You ever had those moments? You know, for me, I think about, I don't find my way down in the city often, 
But when I do get down into the city of Chicago, you know, I, I know that there's people who are going to be uh, begging for handouts on, on the sidewalks and whatnot. And I've, I've really struggled with that. To how, what, what is the most God-honoring way to engage with them? And sometimes uh, I feel like I've uh, done it in a way that honors God. And other times I'm like, Steve, what a jerk. You see need and you just keep on walking because you don't want to be uh, uh, put out on, on wherever you're going. Because wherever you're going is so important. And that's this internal dialogue I have with myself. I really struggle with it. Have I really helped people who are in need? One of the things, a decision I made in my life at one point was uh, anytime I pass someone on the side of the road um, who isn't just pulling over to talk on their phone, but you know, it seems like, okay, there's a flat tire or something, I, I want to stop and help. And where that came from is I, I, I've been that guy. You know, I've been on the side of the road without having the stuff I needed to get done. You know, this is even before, you know, uh, when I first started to drive, cell phones were just starting to come about. And so it wasn't just I can call someone up. It's like, hey, I'm stuck. What can I do? And so I just kind of made this decision. I, I want to stop for people. And, and as the years have gone on, sometimes I've, I've honored that commitment that I've made and I've stopped for people. And other times I haven't. And, and sometimes I have this dialogue in my head where it's like, well, what would that cost me? I see the need, but what would it cost me to stop? I, you know, I'm already tight on time. I don't think I have time to stop and help because I'll be late to something else. Or, you know what, I'm on, I'm on the expressway, I'm on this lane there on the other side, you know, I'd have to go a whole other exit, and you know what, by the time I get turned around, come back, get turned around, and then come back again, get pulled, and someone else, I'm sure, will help them. Yeah, and again, I have this whole conversation in my head, but the fact of the matter is, is I'm seeing people in need. And the question, uh, you know, I'm not trying to answer right or wrong for those specific moments. I'm trying to say, how do we respond in these moments? Think about times in your life where you've seen a need. How did you respond? How do you feel about the way you responded? Do you feel like, yeah, that, that really honored God and blessed that person? Or you know what? Man, I, I really dropped the ball on that one. I'm sure we have stories on both sides of the spectrum that we could share. Well, our story this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus and how he is a true and better Esther. And so before we get to that point, we need to look at the story of Esther. And Esther's story is, is a pretty wild one. It, it is about caring for others, making a sacrifice, taking a risk, putting yourself out there for the sake of others. It's part of her story. And so as we're learning about her story and seeing how Jesus is a true and better Esther, I want you to be thinking about the people in your life that you've seen who are in need. For those who are followers of Jesus, we, we know that those who don't know about Jesus are in need, right? No matter how much they may look like they have it all together, that, that there's an eternity that they've not dealt with. Even if you're here this morning, you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, this is still wise information. I, I would encourage you to hear this both to see, hey, what is the value of, of caring for others? Why, why should I do that? But I also pray and hope that you would hear about who Jesus is and see a clear picture of what he has for you, that you could receive him as Lord and Savior. So let's kind of dig into this here. The story of Esther. We've kind of taken a big jump in our timeline, right? So every week we've been going through this series. We kind of had a, a timeline going, walking through the, the, the history of the Jews, and we've got to the point of Moses, right? And he frees uh, God's people from Egypt, and they're, they're about to go to the promised land, and that was kind of where we stopped, right? 
Well, if you know how the story plays out, there's like 40 years of wandering, and then they get to the promised land, but people are living there, and so there's all these years of battle, and then they finally get the promised land, and um, there's some prosperity, and things are going well, and maybe they get about into the third generation after they uh, demand a king from God, even though God's like, you don't want a king, and like, yeah, we want a king, everyone else has a king, like, you know, you just, you just have me, you don't want a king, he's going to do all this stuff that you're not going to like, no, we want a king, everyone else has a king, they look like fun, and so God gives them a king, and by the third generation, everything's a mess. An absolute mess. I mean, there's civil war going on, there's division, and people are, are turning away from God. And then there's different countries that come in and, and take over, and at one point it's Babylon comes in and, and takes over, and Esther's story takes place about 100 years after Babylon. And one of the things that Babylon did is they would exile people. So they would come in, they would take over your land, and then they'd send you out to all different places throughout their kingdom. Part of it was a control thing. Sometimes they would take the best, a lot of times they take the best and the brightest and they send them back to the capitals and, and, and really try to have a consolidation of, of wisdom there and, and continue to grow their culture. And so about 100 years after that, so Jews are scattered all throughout the Middle East. And at this point in history, uh, Persia is the main empire. Pretty much, you kind of take the Mideast and into Egypt and uh, up, button up to India. Take that whole chunk there. Just about all of that would have been medio Persia. And at this point in our story, um, we have a king. Uh, if you read the scripture account in Esther, you see it's, uh, and I, I practiced this multiple times, I'm still going to botch pronouncing his name, a king, Ahasuerus. Uh, we're calling him Xerxes. I'm not just making it up. Xerxes would be his name in Greek. And so we have King Xerxes, uh, and he is the head over the entire Persian empire. And this guy is doing typical king stuff. He's throwing wild parties. One party was 180 days. And then after that was over, what else is he going to do but throw another party? So he's got a feast going for seven days. And uh, just going to get some of the background to see how Esther comes in the position that she's in when you look at King Xerxes' life. And so he's having this seven-day feast, and he calls for his wife, Vashti. Hey, Vashti, come. I want to show off how beautiful you are. So he sends his messengers to his wife. Hey, come to the party so I can show how great you are. And she says no. Now, in that culture, that was unheard of. It didn't even matter that she was the queen because he was the king, and that was the, the ultimate position of authority. You didn't say no to the king. You didn't even approach the king unless you were called for, and if you were called for, you approached the king. It didn't matter who you were. So she says, no, I'm not coming. And so what does this wild party boy do? He, he disposes her. He's like, all right, we're done. You're not queen anymore. doesn't even say divorce. He's like, yeah, just gets rid of her. You're not the queen anymore. And so he goes to his, his advisor and says, hey, what should I do? Because we don't want people getting the impression that they can say no to the king, right? I mean, they need to know that they got to listen. And, and so the, the wisest people around the king say, hey, here's what we need to do. We're going to have this game show called The Bachelor. And you're going to be The Bachelor, okay? <laughs> and, and we're going to bring all the, the, the village hotties around, and, and you can have your pick. And he's like, I love it. I love it. And so he has a beauty pageant, and he takes who he believes is the most beautiful. And that's Esther. And so now we, Esther enters into the scene here. First wife was just kind of tossed aside. Esther is now the, the, his second wife, uh, the, the new queen. Esther's a Jewish orphan girl. Again, they live, they're living in exile, and so they're all kind of spread all, all, out all over the place. And because her, her parents uh, are not there, she's being raised by her cousin Mordecai. And you know about Mordecai, he's got a whole bunch of awesome stuff going on. We're not going to get into his story too much, but uh, if you want to do some additional reading, I encourage you to just read through the book of Esther and read about these people's story. Uh, just some awesome things that they're doing 
as they walk with God. So now she's living in a foreign land, living in the royal palace, and she is the queen. She has access to the king. But again, remember, the king has the ultimate power. And so even though she's the queen, that there's still some risk there that we're going to get into. Mordecai, at one point, uncovers a plot to, to harm the king, to murder the king. And so uh, because he's got this connection to the king through Esther, he says, hey, Esther, here's this plot that is afoot. And, and then she passes on the king, and they, they kind of uh, thwart the plans. And so all of a sudden, Mordecai gets his, his story written in, in the Persian history books. Hey, we want to celebrate what happened because this guy saved the king. So we have King Xerxes, we have uh, Esther, Mordecai, and then our fourth big player we need to look at here this morning is Haman. Haman is the villain of the story. He is the one crouching in the corner, pulling on his mustache as ominous music plays um, while the king is picking his bachelorette. He is second in command over all Persia. And so from an authority standpoint, the only person who has more than him is King Xerxes. And this guy is hungry for power. You'd think that, you know, that that would satisfy his need for power, but no, I mean, this guy just wants more and more power and glory and fame. And so he does what, what any sane person in, in the second spot would do and says, hey, everybody, you need to bow down to me. Because the guy's you know, a, a little bit of a trick. And so says, you all have to bow to me. Every time I walk by, you need to bow down to me. And Mordecai, he's walking with God. He's like, no, I'm not going to bow to you. I bow to my God. And so Mordecai refuses to bow. And this gets under Haman's skin, Haman's skin. And Haman's like, I don't like that guy. Tell me more about him. He finds out that he's Jewish. Like, you know what? I don't like Jewish people. That's what he says. Because if Haman is Jewish, and Haman won't bow down, I'm sorry, if Mordecai is Jewish, and Mordecai won't bow down to me, then I don't like his whole people. And and, and he, he gets to the point where he wants not only to see Mordecai dead, but he wants to see all the Jews dead. And that's a dangerous thing when you're the second in command of all of the Persian Empire, and, and that's what you're spending your time thinking about. So he sits down with King Xerxes, and he, he kind of turns this into a business deal. He says, hey, King, I, I know some people, and they don't follow you. He's making up, they're following their own God. They're, they don't follow you, and so, you know what, we need to get rid of them. Hey, on top of that, here's what I'll do for you. This would cost a lot to go take out all these people. I'll take care of it. I'll take all their stuff, and I'll bring for you 750,000 pounds of silver. Basically, he says, hey, I'll take care of the people, and then you'll have all, all this wealth coming your way, and it's done. Don't have to worry about it. The king doesn't look into it much. Sure, sounds good. Go for it. And he gives them a green light. So at this point, there is now a date set to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Those are the terms used in, in the story of Esther. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. That tells us Haman's heart, doesn't it? doesn't just say, hey, I want to kill the Jews. No, I want to destroy them. I want to kill them and annihilate them. I want them off the face of the earth is the heart of Haman. And so he sends a date, and it goes out to all the different authorities in Persia. It says, hey, on this day, all the Jews get killed. And it was about a year from when it went out to when the date was to come so that everyone could get word. And, and so this is kind of information that's getting out there and uh, if nothing were to change the jews were heading to their death and they were powerless to change it they didn't have any authority in, in, in the governing body to change anything they didn't have an organized army they, they were exiled throughout the land they weren't even organized so mordecai learns of this plan he tells esther to go to the king for help 
And Esther's hesitant at first. Again, if we understand the context in which the story takes place, then we can understand why she's hesitant. Because if you were to go to the king, even as the queen, if you were to go to the king uncalled for, meaning the king didn't call for you, there are people there who would say, oh, you, didn't, you weren't called for, let's get them. And they would kill you. But the king could hold out his, his golden scepter, and if he did, and say, okay, no, it's okay, I, I, hold on, guys, I'll allow this one. If you would do that, then you could come forward and, and you know, you'd have a conversation with the king. But unless he did that, you were dead. And so this is what she would have to walk into. We even see in the story of Esther that at one point, it had been 30 days since she had seen her husband, the king. Because even though it's a marriage, this guy has some other issues going on. He's got a whole harem that he's spending time with and focusing on. And so he's got his wife, and he thinks she's beautiful and great, but it's not the typical marriage that you would think of. Mordecai goes to Esther and says, hey, you have a place with the king. You've got, you got to go to him and fix this. Esther 4, 14. Uh, we're going to kind of jump a few chapters throughout. If you want to turn to the book of Esther, you're more than welcome. We always encourage you to get the word of God in front of you. The passages I read will be on the screen as well. Um, if you're not sure where Esther is, uh, Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible, and it's also kind of right about in the middle. Uh, so if you kind of flip right open the middle of your Bible, you, you'll get Psalms, and then go back towards the front, you get the book of Job, and then Esther. If you see Nehemiah, you just missed it. Um, so we're, a real quick part here from Esther 4, 14. This is Mordecai, so her adopted father, adoptive father, speaking to Esther, who is now queen. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for a time such as this. When I read that, I was blown away by Mordecai's faith. Absolutely blown away by Mordecai's faith. Here he is. Him and all his people have a death sentence. And he goes to his, his adoptive daughter, adopted daughter, says, hey, if you don't go and do something about this, what does he say? God's deliverance will still come. God will still save his people. God will still do something, Right? So he's talking to the queen. Of course, she's going to have some opportunity to do something, right? Hey, even if you don't, even if you don't stop this, God's going to do something. His heart's for her. He said, hey, if you don't step in and do something, your family line will be wiped out. God's still going to save his people, but man, maybe you're here for just a time such as this. See, Mordecai's faith is visible in his actions. He won't bow down to Haman. He, he, he trusts in, in an unseen plan. He knows that God's going to do something. Whereas Esther's faith has likely been a touch more private, a touch more hidden. And I think we can go through these ebbs and flows in our own journey, in our own walk, right? There's times where if we look back on, on the days, months, years of our life, we're like, you know, outwardly, you couldn't really tell that I was a follower of Christ. Here's Esther. <clears throat> we're going to find out that the king doesn't even know she's Jewish doesn't even know she's Jewish. And so what kind of life was she living in her, her faith that he didn't even know? you got to imagine, so she probably wasn't practicing the holy days, wasn't celebrating, probably didn't have <coughs> excuse me, much religious practice in, in living out her faith. Sure, you could say maybe it was the fact that 
Mordecai was so focused on self, and I'm sure he's not innocent in this either. But Esther had kept her faith so hidden and so private to where it didn't even play itself out in her actions. Maybe God has you here in this place, in this time, for a time such as this, just like Esther was. Who do you identify more with? Are you like Mordecai right now where, again, here's all these things that God's doing in my life and how he's using me and there's all kinds of ways you can see that the God is working in and through me? Or you're more like Esther, like, yeah, I, I call myself a Christ follower and I, I truly do believe, but there's not, not much evidence in my life. If that's you, if you're feeling like Esther, I want you to hear something. That does not disqualify you from being used by God today and the days to come. If you look back in your life and you say, you know what, I, I've kept my faith so internal, so hidden, that it hasn't even played itself out in my actions, that does not disqualify you from being used by God still today in the days ahead. That's where Esther was at, right? And some say, well, yeah, but aren't there some things you can do that would disqualify you from ministry? Well, as we look through Scripture, we see that as a leader, we're called to, to certain things that we're called to do, certain standards. And so are there cases where those in leadership, if we do certain things that would disqualify us from future leadership? Yes, there's truth in that. But does that, does that disqualify us from being used by God? No. There, there are countless stories of, of leaders who have fallen because of their sin, and yet God is still using them today because they've given their life over to him. Because they've, they've responded to him at times like these. At times where God says, hey, this moment I need to work in and through you. They've responded with a yes. And so regardless of what your past has been up until this very moment, you are not disqualified from being used by God, church. God desires to do his work in us, desires to work through us. There's a place for you to, there's a place here for you to serve and contribute to the mission of God. If you're not sure what that is, but he said, I don't know how I can do that. One thing I would encourage you to do is come to Welcome to Meadowland on the 10th. And let's have those conversations. What does it look like in this time, in this place, to be a part of the mission of God? And see, sometimes it requires us to do difficult things or uncomfortable things for the sake of others. That's where Esther is, right? She's having to go do one of the most difficult things in her life for the sake of others. So she goes before the king. Even though she's hesitant, she sees Mordecai's reason. And she says, yeah, there's, there's wisdom in this. This would honor God. And so for the sake of others, she goes before the king, and he spares her life. He doesn't kill her, but he wants to know, hey, what do you have for me? Why did you risk all that to come and see me? And so in some wisdom, I think she's trying to find the right time, the right mood, the right setting to ask what she's going to ask of the king. And so she says, hey, can we have a party? Can we have a meal, a festival? And you want know bring Haman. He's your, your right-hand guy. You and Haman, all prepare. We'll have a party. And, and they do just that. Esther 5, 8. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, this is Esther speaking, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. This is what she's saying at the first feast. Hey, guys, great party. Hey, king, if you wouldn't mind, can we do this again tomorrow? Can I throw another party for you guys? Can we have another? Just, you know, bring him on, you, you your right-hand guy, and me, and we'll, we'll come together. You know, we can read between the lines. Maybe she's just trying to get him good and liquored up before she asks this, this question. Maybe she just wants him to be in a really, really good mood. 
I, I don't know, the text doesn't go into that. But we see that she's trying to find the right moment, the right means to ask what she's going to ask. And we get to this point where she makes the big reveal. This is Esther chapter 7, verse 3 in the beginning of 4. Then Queen Esther asked, Queen Esther answered. This is right after the king's like, what, what, what did you come to me for? What brought you to my presence? And she says this, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. you got to imagine that those words had significant weight when he heard them. And he says, who, who, who put this sentence on you? And she points out Haman. And she reveals the truth. Hey, I'm Jewish. And you've just given him permission. It's already been gone forth to, to kill all the Jews on this set date. And so that includes me. Now what's interesting here is we don't really know Xerxes' response in the sense of why he responds. He's filled with wrath. Now this could be because he genuinely loves Esther. It could also be because this is the queen, and, and, and basically there's a death sentence on the queen's head. And the queen is an extension of the king. And so to go after the queen would be the same as going after the king. And so maybe he's feeling personally attacked now. We're not sure why, but he is filled with wrath. It's so interesting to look at uh, Esther's position. She identifies herself with the Jewish people. She has nothing to gain in this, but everything to lose but she does it so that others could have life. Because she knows if, if things go as planned, it was a death sentence. We can ask this question of ourselves, am I willing to identify with the people of God when it might cost me? It might cost relationships. It might cost resources or time. It might cost being ridiculed. It may even cost us our life. Now, in, where we live, the culture that we've been called to go and reach it's not often, it does happen in the States, I'm not saying it doesn't, but it's not often that our, our life is on the line, but there are Christian brothers and sisters worldwide. To simply say, I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior is a death sentence upon them. Where they have family members, brothers, uncles, fathers, who are willing to put them to death because of their belief in Jesus. Let's be in prayer for those brothers and sisters. Let's be willing to unite with them and, and be willing to sacrifice things in our own life that we'd be willing to say, you know what, if it costs a relationship, you know, so be it. I'll walk that road because I'm going to proclaim Jesus. If it costs me being ridiculed, if it costs some of my resources, I'm going to walk that road just like Esther did for the sake of others. So Xerxes is filled with wrath, and he places the blame on Haman. What's interesting is he's just as much to blame as Haman is, right? Haman says, hey, I want to kill all these people. He said, go for it. He, he didn't stop. He didn't look into it. He didn't say, hey, who really are we talking about? But he finds a way to place all the blame on Haman and basically orders Haman to death. Right then and there, uh, some guys come over, they put a, a bag over his head, you know, CSI style, and they, they, they take him off. Hey, we've got to kill him. And, and he had been setting up for the death of Mordecai. I mean, this guy just really was fixated on Mordecai. And so he'd set up a 75-foot gallows in his backyard to hang Mordecai from. And just a, kind of a poetic, a dark poetic twist in all this. That's the gals they hang him on. And so here he'd been setting up all this from Mordecai because of Esther going and saying, hey, this is what your decree has done. I, I'm Jewish. It's a death sentence on me. The king says, let's get rid of Haman. Let's undo this. 
And so they put Haman to death. And what's interesting, too, is that as the story plays out, Mordecai actually eventually becomes second in command. What's interesting now, we kind of take a little tangent, we can see how dramatically Haman's story changed, right? I mean, up until his final day, he was on top of the world. He was without want. He had anything he had. He, he, wanted, he had power. He had fame. He had fortune. Here's a guy he didn't like, and so he's putting all these steps into place to get rid of him and take care of him. And then in a moment, he goes from that high position to begging at the feet of the queen. Just begging. Don't do this. Don't, don't allow the king to take my life. But the king takes his life, and we also see that, like I said, Mordecai ends up in that place. He went from living it up with success to, to death. See, we figure, church, that we'll, we'll always have tomorrow. We always have so far, right? Up until this point, we've always had tomorrow. Haman didn't. And it just totally blindsided him. Not only do we always think that we'll have a tomorrow for ourselves, but our neighbors, our coworkers, our loved ones oftentimes think this way. But there's no guarantee for our tomorrow, and there's no guarantee for their tomorrow. And this is why Esther went to the king, right? Because there's no guarantee for her people's tomorrow. Let us be moved and motivated by that. See, Esther risked giving up her place in the palace. She defeated an evil adversary. She risked her life by doing so when she came before the king. And because of her actions, an entire nation received life. So knowing that, knowing her story, let's look at how is Jesus a true and better Esther. See, while Esther risked her place in the palace, Jesus left his heavenly throne. He came down from heaven to seek and to save those who were lost. In every other religion, you look at, how do we get into a place with God? How do we get into a relationship with God? Every other religion, it's about what you have to do or think. Have you done enough? Have you done the right things? But where those fall short is that we are powerless to deal with what separates us from God. Being a disciple is about following the Lord and Savior who came to us who came to us and said, hey, you can't make your way to God. In the same way that the Jews were powerless to save themselves, we are powerless to save ourselves from sin. Sin is the ways that we've gone against the word of God, the ways that we are imperfect compared to a perfect God. And scripture would teach that the, the uh, penalty for that is death, is bloodshed. And there's nothing that we can do. We can't be good enough. We can't live our life a certain way. We can't be, you know, do everything right from this point forward because we've already messed up in the same way that the jews were powerless to overcome their adversary we were powerless but esther spoke up for the jews and jesus comes and seeks us he left his place in heaven to come to us where esther defeated an evil adversary jesus defeated the ultimate adversary he brought death to death this is what we're going to spend a lot of time celebrating this next weekend as we look at Good Friday and Easter, is that Jesus not only defeated death, but he demonstrated his uh, ultimate sovereign power over Satan. I invite you, if you haven't already made plans, make plans to come Friday night, 7 o'clock, to our Good Friday service. And then come Sunday morning, either 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock. And if you're going to be out of time, if you can't make it here, make it somewhere. Be a part of the people of God, celebrating the work of Jesus on the cross in the empty tomb. Where Esther risked her life before the king, Jesus gave his up. Esther risked hers, but Jesus gave his life up. 
Imagine if, if the story played out a little differently. Imagine when all of a sudden, you know, Esther says, hey, surprise, I'm Jewish. And all of a sudden, the, the king's wrath is burning for Haman, and they, they put the bag over his head, and they're dragging him away. What if she stood up and said, hang on a sec. Haman, I forgive you for what you've done. I forgive you for wanting to kill my father, Mordecai. I forgive you for wanting to kill my entire nation. And not only do I forgive you, but there's still a payment to be paid. Someone still needs to pay the price for your actions. And I'm going to step into your place. And I'm going to give up my life so that you could live. Imagine that's how the story played out. What an amazing story of forgiveness. And while that's not how the story of Esther plays out, that's how our story plays out. That's how the story of Jesus plays out. Because we're Haman. We're the ones who have wronged God. We're the ones who are enemies of God. Apart from the work of Jesus in our life, we stand as enemies of God. And God's wrath burns against us. But his love is so great as a perfect and loving God that he sends us Jesus to pay the price for us so that we don't have to go to the gallows, so that we don't have to experience death, but that we can have life in Jesus. What an amazing story. This is the gospel. This is the good news. See, Haman was guilty before a guilty frat boy king. The one he was guilty before was just as guilty as he was. We stand guilty before a perfect and just king of kings. And then Jesus steps in and gives up his life for ours. He takes on our punishment so that we can have life. Where Esther risked her life to be, when she came before the king, Jesus gave his up so that we could be in the presence of the king. Through Esther, the Jews received life, but in Jesus, all people can receive life eternal. It's a gift that was freely given. This is just kind of some speculation on my part, but what do you think the Jews did after they found out what Esther had done? What do you think they did that day? Those who knew about the death sentence, hey, on this day, <coughs> we're all wiped out. Oh, oh, that's done. That's gone away with because what Esther did. What do you think they did? Well, in part, yeah. They, they probably lived their day a little, they lived life a little more that next day, didn't they? Because even though their head was never on the chopping block uh, physically, the noose was never around their neck, they knew that day was coming. And so they knew that they had been brought from a place of death into life. And you've got to imagine that, man, they, they lived every day the rest of their life. In the same way, what do we do when we receive life in Jesus? We trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We say that, I believe you're the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. We trust in him. What are we to do but to live life anew in Jesus? If you've got your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. I want to leave you with this. This is something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. It's got some words here that I think are fitting for us today. As we look at Esther's story, as we look at what Jesus did for us so that we could have life with God, as we look at what it means to go and serve others for their sake so that they could find life in Jesus as well. And so Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And it begins with this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ... If you're encouraged at all because of the work of Jesus in your life, if you're encouraged at all because of the forgiveness, because of the sonship and daughtership, because of the life and the growth that comes through Jesus, if that encourages you at all, if there's any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is one of those texts where it doesn't take much to preach. We could just kind of read it a few times to ourselves and be like, okay, okay. Let's see what you're calling me to, God. Some things came to mind of, of ways I can surrender to you and live this out in my life. We have a call to be unified. We have a call to be unified. There's one God, there's one Father, there's one Savior, one Spirit. There's one mission of God. Let's be one mind, the mind of Jesus. We see this played out in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, the second chunk here. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So being of this one mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so the mind of Jesus was to live a life that would bring life to others. To live a life that would bring life to others. Let's be unified in that church. Let's be unified in being others-focused. And this is, plays out in both the church and in the community. Galatians 6, 9-10 says this, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, as we become aware of, as we notice in the corner, as we see out of the corner of our eye, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is kind of like saying, Love your neighbors and love your family as well, right? We, we can go out and love our neighbors. We've got to make sure we're, we're loving our family at home too, right? And so love those in the house of God and, and let's go out in our community and love them. Let's be unified. Let's be unified around being others-focused, church. And the last thought is we look at what we're called to make in Matthew 28. This is some of Jesus' final words to his disciples and he calls them to go and make disciples. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say go and be disciples and stop there. Obviously, to make disciples, you need to be a disciple. But he says, go and make disciples. I think sometimes we get caught up in just simply being a disciple. Like Esther is like, I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm being Jewish. But she didn't live that out. She didn't express that in her everyday life. But then for a time such as this, where people's lives were on the line, God called her to go and make change to bring life and she answered it so god is calling us here today to go and make disciples by being unified in one spirit and one mind to put others before ourselves and to look for every opportunity to go and do good when you think about others in your community church let's make a commitment let's not be a haman let's be an esther and let's go live in that example we're willing to go and do difficult, challenging things for the sake of others. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. We thank you for the story of Esther. We thank you for the encouragement and the inspiration that it brings. Father, we thank you for the story of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us, that we can find life in you. In the same way that Esther was used to save a nation, Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could all have eternal life. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they would do that now in this moment. 
in this prayer, they would simply acknowledge that you are God, Jesus, and that your death on the cross paid the price for their sins, and that when they trust in you, they have eternal life. And for those who are at that place and want to make that decision, and those who already have made it, Father God, let us be of one spirit, of one mind, of others focused. Send us out into our community. Let us go and tell everyone who will listen about you and invite them to come and see you. Invite them to experience you, Lord Jesus. We pray you would do this all, Father, for your glory and for our good. We thank you, Father. In your name, amen.